Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome, Brendan here with Mark, vetgurus.com, vetgurus at gmail.com, episode 161, Friday, October 30, October the 30th, Mark, 2020, and we've relaxed restrictions a little bit here, Mark, in Melbourne. Um, I think we've had the, almost the world record, I think, for the for the number of months, the number of days in the highest restriction levels for the COVID bug the covid virus so um brendan from being, yep. being an australian not living in victoria i have to do the whole shout out to you in particular but all the the people in melbourne who've um literally had the um you know the the their their society on the brink of collapsing to covid uh pandemic 700 uh active cases 800 active cases and you guys bit the bullet you did the job you were in hard lockdown what for six or seven weeks and you turned it around you guys are bloody heroes in my mind for our country and not just may have set a record with typical self-deprecating tone you guys smashed it out of the park and led the world my friend thank you victoria I'm just hoping we don't have a phase, a third wave and a fourth wave and a fifth wave, Mark. So, yes, um, strange times. But, yes, um, the restaurants are now open to dine in, which they haven't been for, for months. And uh, people went a bit silly, as they do, <laughs> with opening of the, the big malls or the shopping centres here in Australia, um, in Victoria. Um, as soon as they opened at midnight, I think, on, on the Wednesday night, there were hundreds if not thousands of people queuing up for the for the basic stores like Kmart and and Meyer and um and Coles and or not no, the big W all those sort of um um big box retailer type stores so yes um I stayed away Mark I I, I maintained my hermitville <laughs> attitude and stayed away so yes so vetgurus.com a place to go enough about the pandemic for this week and we'll talk about it next week um I forgot to mention a country with one listener or one subscriber mark last week so I won't cover two but um I'll run through the next one on the list mark is we have one listener in Uganda, only one person in Uganda that listens to us. So if that is you listening right now, send us an email, vetgurus at gmail.com and tell us about yourself and how things are going there and um, what part of the veterinary industry you are involved in. Um, it would be great to hear from you. And um, we have a few of the countries in Africa, Mark, where we only have one listener, so we need to really push our domination in that continent. <laughs> I don't know how we're going to do it, but we need to. So we need to keep, keep spreading our wings. And speaking of spreading wings, Mark, I've got a review coming up soon, and that's sort of a bit of a tip, a bit of a hint about what the review will be about. But there's no way in the world you'll guess what it is. But that's, You've got your pilot's licence. That's the hint, and uh, I will leave it at that. It may be 
And I can hear some birds in the background there. What what have you got? Um, is that one of your pets or it's outside? It must be outside. It's, there's a few sulphur-crested cockatoos, and we'll probably get the yellow-tailed blacks flying over later. They, uh, they usually head around as well. Excellent. So... Let's jump into news stories, Mark, and I think you have the first one, and it's um, lots of peas. <laughs> you did. I, I, I think most of our listeners can guess that there's an attempt to trip us, each of us, uh, to the other, trip us up on pronunciation, and and this alliteration um, is definitely an attempt on your part to set me off. The pet industry news have a an article titled Parrot, Pet and Patio Poultry Ownership Rise in Pandemic. Um, and and it is a really interesting aspect to um, the fact that we, you know, in small animal practice, we know there's been um, an increase in dogs in particular. Um, but this article focuses on the fact that uh, um, the food market, the, the companies that make the food for our uh, birds and uh, poultry, particularly one in the US, the the uh, TOP's parrot food. Um, their chief operating officer, Gary Gary Rubin, um, has said that um, there's been like an explosion in growth of the use of uh, high quality uh, parrot food, and. Um, and so this is a good thing, first of all, that uh, people are paying attention as they acquire these animals um, to high-quality care and the things they need to do, nutrition-wise and otherwise. Um, and, um, and yeah, they were the customers were buying three to four times the usual amount because of not only that they want to make sure they supplied the best food, but there's an element of, um, of toilet paper uh, um, going on that people didn't know whether they'd be able to get back to the shops or when they did that the food would be there so they were buying significant amounts of food as well Brendan um so uh, I'd be interested to see the long-term um outcomes of uh, of that sort of thing whether the the uh the birds maintain their level of care whether the companies selling that food continue to um to do stuff you know, uh, in that fashion. And and almost by reflection, um, the the uh, poultry, the, the uh, Association of um, um, American Retired People report that Americans are searching for rental services um, that provide the opportunity to have companionship and consumables associated with backyard hens. Um, so... Geez, it's a. Um, we know that poultry care has been, um, poultry uh, backyard poultry have been rising. The ownership of backyard poultry has been rising, but the pandemic's just put a little bit of turbocharge in the backyard chook uh, industry, and um, and so yeah. Yes, I think that's it. Eight out of ten hen households reported considering their poultry to be pets mark which is no surprise to us um and perfect pronunciation mark i must say um with you for that article so well done well mine's a very quick one and it's a bit of a follow-up of an article we you spoke about um several times and that's the wildfires or the bushfires here in in australia um and those devastating fires that um there's been several reports haven't there and, and studies trying to 
determine um, the number of animals that were were um, killed or displaced, and um, this one summarised in saying that was almost three billion animals, which is a little bit mind-boggling, isn't it, Mark? Um, and I know we've mentioned that it was originally reported around what, one billion or so, and it kept going up and up and up, um, and. Uh, yeah, um, the tally includes, um, with this particular um, summary or survey, 143 million mammals, 2.5 billion reptiles, 180 million birds and 51 million frogs, Mark. Um, so the um, reason why I, it, it sort of piqued my interest a little bit is we are starting to come into our summer here in, in Australia and um it's one one aspect I'm not particularly looking forward to is our, our bushfire season, and um, I'm just hoping that we don't have the types of um, incidents we had last year, Mark. Um, I don't think there's an easy way or a, a nice segue to to turn it into a, a good news story, there, Mark. Well, I was going to just add that um, that one of the things that I find disconcerting about these sorts of reports is that the numbers start to get incomprehensible, like the you know, Absolutely. you mentioned one billion, three billion. Once it gets, you know, the the distress that you see with a single animal with that's been burnt to death, it just it's it's literally means you cannot wrap your mind around the destruction that occurred. And like you, I hope it. I hope we manage to first of all get over the next um, the uh, the next six months, our our summer season. Um, but also I hope we can put things in place to change it. I know that I've driven past part of the um, Wollamai National Park where those fires occurred and the devastation, it's not, you know, we have fires here where uh, where it's blackened and then, you know, six weeks after the epicormic buds are sprouting and, and life is starting to return to normal and, and I've been to places near home where a couple of years later you really, unless you're aware, you wouldn't, know that there was a fire but these fires last year were cataclysmic and and the landscapes even when i was out there just a couple of weeks ago um they are they're devastating to look at and and it will be decades before they recover the diversity and number of of, um, plants and animals that live there so no it's not a good segue but no no, the only thing that makes me think of is, you know, one billion, three billion. It's a, the number of brain cells that I lose when I go out drinking with you, Mark. Um, <laughs> and once you get to those sort of numbers, you just forget about it and wonder whose who's shout is it next, um, I suppose. So let's jump into the main news topic because it's a bit of an interesting one. I think we'd, we'll, we'll have, no doubtedly just do a bit of an overview of this topic and we'll touch on it again many times, and it's about. Um, well, I've I've termed a new phrase there, Mark. You see, the title for the um, for this episode is aviatrics. I like it. That, I aviatrics. Like that. I think it's a new term that we should use. Um, so, geriatric bird care should be called aviatrics. In, in um, so you know, it's a concantation, concantation or whatever you want to call it, of, of geriatrics, the term geriatric and avian, obviously. And um, I looked up the old term geriatric there, Mark, and geriatric come the, the Greek terms, ger- geron, meaning old man or old person or the science of ageing, and the suffix iatric or iatros, meaning 
um, well, broadly either healer or, or medicine or apply, relating to, to medicine or physician. So I've, I've shoved a bird on the front of it and I'm going to call it aviatrix. So I think it, that should be the, um, you know, you might become the first aviatrix um, specialist. Mm, I, I love your etymology. So we're going to talk about ageing birds, Mark, and why are we going to talk about this? Because like all the unusual pets that we see in practice, when we're doing things right, they are getting older and living a good life as they age, like we are, Mark, hopefully, and that we will continue to do. So the first question I'd have to you, Mark, is, you know, what's the oldest pet bird you've seen? And, and, and for those veterinarians and nurses, technicians who don't have much experience with our avian friends, um, what's sort of the range of, of, of ages that we see with these pet birds? Well, it's, that's a great question. And, and I do think this is one area of, of uh, practice where, I, where if I'm going to wax lyrical and talk about it, I really want to be fairly, you know, um, fact-driven because I know that you go into many consults and, uh, and people go, oh, that was um, Granddad's bird. It's, it was yes. like 90 when he got it and, and he yeah. passed and away in 1923. <laughs> So I've, I'm, the numbers I'm about to report to you, I have um, uh, chased up hard evidence that the bird involved was, well, you know, as much as we can be certain was um, either with photographic evidence or whatever. And I'm sure there's still sometimes where much like, I don't know, you know, parents who lose the budgie and buy another blue budgie the next day, um, maybe there is some substitution that people are not aware of. But um they live a long time. The take-home message is they do live a surprisingly long time and and depending on the species and, and often it's related to the size, they probably live a lot longer than people expect um, and it would be the, the oldest bird I can genuinely attest to having uh, photographic evidence um, of it being with um, the gentleman's father um, was an 86-year-old galah, which um, passed away yeah. only two weeks ago. So um, uh, there, there are some very, very um, senior birds um, who live a very, very long time in captivity. That's an old bird, Mark, isn't it? So what do you, um, this is slightly off topic, so what do you say to new potential new bird owning clients when they say gee i like the thought of owning a, a sulfur crested cockatoo or galah um um and i'm about to purchase one so what do you how do you introduce the potential thought into their head that um perhaps we have an animal that is going to live for tens of years bluntly brendan <laughs> I introduce the thought um reasonably like a it's one of those things that um, I think that people don't uh, don't immediately, you know, we all know that um, cockatoos live for 70, 80, some of the black, black cockatoos might live 100 or 110 years. Um, these birds, uh, it's not immediately apparent to most people that they're going to have that responsibility for that length of time, um, you know, the, the that particular aspect of ownership is not something that they think of immediately so it is something that I tend to be a little bit um, forthright about um, I and particularly 
more and more I'm getting the chance to talk to people before they actually acquire the bird um, and, um, and along with all the other responsibilities, the duration of that responsibility of ownership is, um, is something that I really do uh, lay it on very thick with a trowel and a bucket um, because I think that um, unless people are prepared to accept that they might have to organise some form of inherited care um, with some of these birds, that maybe they shouldn't take those responsibilities on. Yes. So what sort of problems do we see in these geriatric birds? How would you define a geriatric bird, Mark? What's the definition? When is it old? Well, it depends on the species. Um, it depends a little bit on the species. And the interesting thing is that um, there's no universal, even percentage of expected lifetime because birds like budgerigars, for example, they are going to, in the wild, probably only live um, between two and six years. They're a desert species. They are prolific breeders. They breed um, outstandingly well in good times. They travel vast distances. They die in large numbers uh, because of the harsh environment, and so they don't live a long life. Now, in captivity, um, those birds are probably in their senior years by the time they're, you know, four, four and a half, five. But a lot of those birds, budgerigars, it's not unheard of to have them get to double figures and even um, maybe reach uh, their late teens. But those budgerigars that do live a long time have lived the majority of their life as geriatric birds. And so that's one of the reasons that budgerigars have those problems of senior years for a much greater proportion of their life than other birds. The, um, for other birds, so let's take, for example, um, my galah in question, I would normally think that most um, galahs are going to be um, senior by the time they're in their late 20s. So um, they're probably in the wild living maybe 30, 35 years, um, and the last five years of that normal lifespan in the wild would be something we would expect would be their senior years, their geriatric years. But um, in captivity, they're going to age the same rate, but they're going to be supported a little bit more. And with good luck, they might reach um, the age of my, my poor patient who passed away recently and, and um, get to, you know, six or seven or eight decades of life. Have I answered your question at all, Brendan? Have I dropped off the... Mark, you always answer my question. I just forget to unmute myself as <laughs> usual. So the, the follow-on question there is, what sort of problems or conditions do we commonly see in these geriatric birds? Do we see the same similar sort of processes and illnesses that we see in, in our mammals and our reptiles, for instance? Yes, the short answer to that is yes. And it's hardly surprising um, that the typical diseases of old age, the, the um, cancers, the neoplasms, the changes to um, uh, um, circulatory system, atherosclerosis that's associated with um, liver and um, cardiovascular function. Um, interestingly enough, we see an awful lot of changes that are associated with while the birds don't necessarily put the same pressure on their joints, we definitely see a significant amount of uh, degenerative joint disease. Um, 
and um, and certainly um, an increase in the endocrinological dis dysfunctions. The birds that get to uh, senior years regularly still have active reproductive systems, but the incidence of complications and problems is much, much higher. Yes. And what would – so let's just go through a couple of the – the conditions, what's probably the most common ones or the ones that pop into your head as far as geriatric avian diseases that you'd see most commonly? It's probably joint problems. The most common problem we see are birds with altered mobility. And I think there's a couple of factors here, Brendan. Obviously, they're very light and you would think that um, if they for the forces on those joints, they might not necessarily be getting the same trauma that, say, you know, a, a, a Labrador or um, heavyset dogwood. But I think there's also a, a component of um, subclinical metabolic bone disease when they were young it has no effect through their sort of um, main part of their life. But once they get to their senior years, the very slight alterations to the nature and angles of the joints make it um, much more um, significant. So, um, so certainly, uh, joint disease and altered mobility is the is one of the most common things that we see. And just like our dogs and cats, um, the sorts of things that we would be thinking about doing would be um, uh, using um, maybe non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs to decrease inflammation about the joints. We might be thinking of changing the nature of the environment so the birds are on softer, more supportive, uh, lower perches. We might be looking at their environmental enrichment, um, making changes so that it requires less climbing and strength, making things so that they uh, don't necessarily have to um, fly as far or as much if they still fly, or setting it up so that uh, even birds that don't fly will flap their wings and the immense forces of those uh, that that flapping can put huge pressure on the the um, the joints up the top of the wing, the shoulder and elbow, and and so just trying to set things up so those events are less likely that can make a big difference to their quality of life. So on that specific topic, do you, have you seen any papers or, or publications or thoughts from people comparing? Uh, pet birds and, and wild birds of supposedly similar, similar ages and um, comparing the, if we stick with, you know, joint problems, um, you know, the point is, do, do, is, is it much more common in, as we'd assume, I suppose, in, in the pet bird um, Yes, the sure. yes. With, compared with the wild one, is there any actual hard evidence out there? Compared, you know, that where they've tracked and and, and um, um, documented um, the lifespan of some of these and followed these wild wild birds and compared them with the pet ones that are on perhaps not ideal substrate and husbandry and um, confined, um, so increased arthritis, etc. Yeah, there is. And it is very thin on the ground, but there are um, some surveys of like-aged birds um, that do seem to point in exactly the, the direction your intuition has led you, um, that, uh, that birds in the wild of a particular age um, are less likely to have um, those mobility issues um, than the birds of the, the same age in captivity. And there is the, the, the number of species where that's been done is relatively limited. 
um, but uh, but it would appear at this stage, at least, that um, that uh, uh, that that, it, that captivity does predispose to those sorts of problems. I would say, though, Brendan, I think that that that's changing a little bit. I think that um, the whole of life attitude, the understanding of nutrition, the understanding of behavioural enrichment, the expectations of clients who have birds as pets, all these things are changing um, the quality of life of the geriatric patients we get to see. Um, and, um, and, yeah, I think uh, while they're still going to get to a certain age and have these problems, um, I expect that it will be less and less of a problem as time goes on. Yes, and you mentioned anti-inflammatories for these um, joint issues. Are there any specific thoughts or tips or tricks with with um, other medications that do or don't work in our avian friends? Well, certainly, uh, we've. Uh, I'm going to um, depart from our typical evidence-based pattern and talk about some of my personal experiences. Um, I can't say that I've had excellent. Um, results using the the uh, um, pentosan polysulfate um, uh, that class of drugs joint fluid modifiers um, and I think that probably reflects uh, the connective tissue you know the different focus around the joints I don't think the the degenerative joint disease that we see in the birds follows the same pattern um, as the uh, in our mammals where the joint the quality of the joint fluid changes dramatically. So I, that's not an area that we leap into. We certainly have used um, essential fatty acids um, in some of these birds. We do try and manipulate the diet so there's less calories and we're trying to control body weight. And as I said before, trying to arrange um, environmental enrichment in such a way that it stimulates movement uh, but limits the chance for dangerous movement um, all good principles to apply around uh, as ancillary treatments to anti-inflammatory effect. Very comprehensive. Should you show back? Very comprehensive. Now, so, um, what other next step, what would be the next most common or one of the other common conditions you see in geriatric birds? Well, one of the other common ones that we see um, and, and probably gives me a little bit of, um, has, has traditionally given me a little bit of reason for distress and might be a little bit of a surprise, is um, uh, uh, vision issues. We regularly see um, birds of a number of species reach a particular senior age and those birds um, will, will develop, develop aspects of blindness. And I have always worried, um, you know, that one of the things about uh, treating dogs with visual problems is that you can be very confident that the dogs don't depend on their vision nearly as much as people do because they have um, those other acute senses of hearing and smell. Um, and so to lose some vision in a dog is not as big a impost on their sensory input as it would be for humans. But birds do match um, the human sort of proportion of data input from each of the senses. They are highly visual organisms, um, and so the loss of vision is a real has a real impact on their quality of life. Um, so I think two aspects to this. I think if we see birds that have 
um, developing changes, particularly if they're developing cataractus change or um, something that uh, might develop into a visual issue. I think aggressive treatment early, aggressive diagnostic workup and even referral um, to ophthalmology specialists who have an interest in this area is well worth the effort. But even if the birds do progress to the point where they um, cannot see, we have a number of patients who are utterly blind, a number of avian patients, and their highly motivated clients have set up the enclosures, um, nutrition, all the arrangements that they, they can uh, set up to maintain that high standard and quality of life. Um, so I think it is a treatable thing, Brendan. Yes. And what would be, so you're seeing increasing numbers of these, what would some of the subtle sort of signs that you now would be seeing, um, no pun intended, or, or what the clients are stating that might point you towards that there might be a problem with the vision in that bird? Well, the main one is that uh, the one that, you know, there's obviously a cohort of birds who have um, changes to the lens. You'll notice those ones and they're pretty easy to start um, working with the client um, and giving them an indication there may be some change in the vision. But, um, but noticing that the birds are um, losing weight has led us to, because the bird, those birds will um, not move. They won't go to their normal food bowl as they start to lose vision. Um, they will um, not necessarily continue to eat. And that's probably been the thing that's that sort of keyed us in to search around, do a fecal, do a, a number of uh, um, diagnostic tests to see if we can figure out about the weight loss. But we should always keep it in mind that um, particularly with birds of a particular age, um, that, uh, that uh, loss of visual acuity may well be the cause of them not eating as they normally do. Do you see it more often in any particular species than others, percentage-wise? That's a good question. I knew you were going to ask me that, and I've been, <laughs> been poring over um, uh, in my head the the, uh, the the blind birds we see, and, and definitely I can tell you that uh, the majority of them are cockatiels. But whether that's out of, you know, we see a hell of a lot of cockatiels in general, so whether it's proportionate to the number of birds we see, I wouldn't want to guess at the moment. But certainly we... We definitely see a, uh, a significant number of the cockatiels that get, you know, that to a, they might live in the wild to 12 to 14 years. We've got a couple of cockatiels that have gotten into their 20s and those cockatiels of a, a certain age definitely have a high rate of um, developing visual problems. Interesting. Well, let's quickly... Five minutes, Max. Run through other <laughs> other geriatric conditions of importance, or one, or or, or percentage wise that you see a reasonable number of um, that pop into your head. Ah, now, renal. Do you see any renal problems commonly in these older animals, or not? It's a funny thing because we, with birds, we, the frequency of renal disease is probably um, stretches over their whole life, and. Obviously, we're going to see um, in those senior birds an increase in, um, you know, they're at the stage where the kidneys are going to uh, uh, run out of reserve capacity. But generally speaking, um, our, the birds that have renal disease often have had um, a history of inappropriate nutrition or maybe access to um, micro doses of toxins. 
Um, and so most of the birds that we see with renal disease are not, you know, it's not a common reason for us to approach. We're conscious of it with the birds of a particular age, but it's not always something that we're um, worried about or having to deal with with um, a lot of those senior birds. Yes. What about what about neoplasia? Do you think that's an increase in percentage as they become geriatric or not? No, no, I, I definitely think it is. And I think that there is a little bit of, as I was mentioning before, a little bit of a, a curveball, a red herring in that um, some species will, in captivity, be spending a large portion of their domestic life in their senior years. But there's no doubt that we see an increase in the the number of reproductive tumours, the number of, um, of uh, uh, um, bone uh, problems. The, those neoplastic issues definitely become much more of an issue as the birds get to their senior years. What about behavioural issues as they get in older, as in, well, sorry, brain ageing? Do you think that's a, a big factor in, in aged birds or not? I do think that, I don't think they develop the same degree of um, cognitive dysfunction that we might see in, for example, in senior dogs. I do think they become more, uh, more critically tied to the things that um, make them feel comfortable and so routine becomes a um, you know a, a very very important thing the the things that um, make them feel comfortable the things that make them feel secure the patterns of day and night um, the 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 shrouds, the the routine with the application of a shroud on their cage, um, all those sorts of things seem to become much more critical as the birds get older. Um, so I think that's a very very important thing. And and I think one of the things about you know those cockatoos, for example, that often will pass between generations. Um, I I know it's a um, a difficult circumstance but I think that transition to a new home is a real uh, stressful very stressful time in their life and anything that uh, people can do to anticipate that stress and maybe alleviate it maybe sometimes even um, uh, talking to their avian veterinarian about behavioral modification or uh, whatnot as they get to that stage or shortly after inheriting a bird that makes a big difference to their quality of life too um, yes and perhaps we don't have the the skills or the diagnostic techniques to try and detect some of these brain changes in in bird species um, compared with other species. Um, management, Mark. Um, you mentioned earlier on, um, just to sort of wrap up some a bit of a summary of aviatrics. Um, environment changes you mentioned a couple of things like perches etc do you want to just touch on a couple of practical things that seem to work with these geriatric birds and the common conditions that we're seeing like those arthritic changes for instance um, in them well there's probably uh, let me quickly cite four things that i would put into place um, with those geriatric birds um, and i'll lead up to um, some specific changes in the nature of perches. Um, I do think it's worth um, uh, planning to have some supplementary heat for these older birds. I think they often have 
um, uh, thermoregulatory issues. As young birds with complete functionally normal plumage, um, normal circulation, they will thermoregulate excellently. But as they get older, it's not uncommon for many of the senior birds to have um, uh, problems with their plumage that mean they don't thermoregulate nearly as well. And so supplementary heating um, is an outstanding additional thing to help those older birds cope, particularly in uh, Melbourne winter, Brendan. And I think um, uh, thinking about um, dietary changes. Now, we're all about um, optimal diets and how they might uh, influence health in our exotic and unusual species. Uh, but I think one of the key things with aged birds is that we definitely see an increase in endocrinologic problems. We see issues with um, uh, uh, patterns of digestion with high energy diets and really working hard to cut out those high energy foods, particularly seeds, um, but trying to make sure that uh, there's less energy going in seems to make these birds much more comfortable in the long run. As far as um, uh, I often get asked uh, whether the birds need companionship in their senior years. And I think the key thing here is that what we we're talking about before um, consistency and the same as it's always been. If the birds have been in the company of other birds as young birds, then for sure, make sure they've got some um, um, some suitable, sensitive companions to spend their time with. But many of these birds have not had that experience and have spent all their time with humans. Um, and it's important to make sure that that uh, companionship is probably enhanced as they get older to add that additional sense of uh, security and well-being that their flock is around them and not leaving them. As far as perches, the sort of practical application, I find that as the birds get older, um, broader perches closer to the bottom of the cage are more important. Um, they that if they have some form of um, maybe even uh, um, uh, a rubberized surface, we regularly in hospital use um, perches that have uh, neoprene rubber wrapped around them. That tends to sh share the weight over the whole uh, perch rather than have specific pressure points um, where the bird's foot comes into contact with the perch. The give of the neoprene rubber will often allow the birds to um, to spread the weight a little bit more and take pressure off those specific locations that might end up hurting their joints or the connective tissue around their joints. So a big broad perch close to the bottom with a soft surface really makes a difference to their quality of life. Excellent. Well, another good summary. You can hear some more birds there in the background, Mark, so they're all flocking to listen to your, your comments there and banging on the window to organise a consultation with you, I'm sure, <laughs> at the moment. Um, any other final thoughts before we leave our aviatrics? My final one is that um, that I think vets can play a huge role in this, Brendan. I think um, that uh, if we have avian vets who, you know, that, uh, become involved in the routine care of, um, of birds, doing their annual exams, making sure that uh, they do the appropriate testing, preparing people for some of these changes um, rather than trying to patch them up as they get an older bird. Um, I think that's a real area for veterinarians to get involved in. So I think um, 
Aviatrics represents an opportunity for our uh, avian vets to get involved in the long-term care of their patients. Excellent, as usual. A great summary, Mark. We'll talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time. Thanks.